0: In the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast.
1: We're going to be reading today from Hebrews 1, um, so feel free to open your apps or your Bibles if you want to read along. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Kirsten. A hundred and some odd sermons. I've never actually had my paper Bible up front with me. I found it's just easier and more uh, foolproof to have it all, every passage I want to read, everything just squared away straight in my notes. But guys, I'm going to bring the actual paper book up and we'll, we'll see what happens today. <laughs> all right. Um, today will be different, guys. I have 14 pages of notes here, and normally my sermons run about seven or eight pages. So you do the math on how long we would be here if I said everything that I wanted to say. Um, so... What we're going to do is we're going to do an intro week. We're going to be going through a Hebrews series. We'll spend approximately one week per chapter. So we're looking at a few months of going through Hebrews. We'll take occasional breaks for guest preachers um, or just if something big happens in our country, which, you know, that never happens, right? Uh, But if something big happens that needs to be (laughs) talked about, um, we'll, we'll take a break. So, this week it feels kind of strange because I feel a bit like I'm putting my professor hat on rather than uh, pastor because we're going to be explaining a lot of the foregrounding that goes into this letter. So, a lot of people in the church are familiar with certain books uh, where Protestants tend to be very familiar with the book of Romans. There's a lot of people here who, if I said, What's in Romans 5? What's in Romans 9? There's maybe a few people here who would kind of know, well, yeah, I think that chapter's about this, or that chapter's about that. But I could say, what's the book of Hebrews about? And a lot of people have no clue. They've maybe read it a couple of times. It's kind of in the leftovers of the New Testament, right? You've got your Gospels, and then you've got all of Paul, and then you've got like, I don't know, there's like Jude and Revelation and James, there's Hebrews, I don't know, that's, that's confusing. And so people, a lot of people treat the last third of the New Testament as kind of a leftovers Section, um, But Hebrews is amazing, and it is a theological kin. It is, it is at the top of the theological pile. Only Romans has even a, a shot at being as theologically complex and beautiful and brilliant as Hebrews. But because it's kind of in the last section of the New Testament, a lot of people don't give it its due. So in the early church, we'll begin this strange, more uh, <laughs> historical or lecture-based sermon In the early church, there was wide agreement over which books belonged in the canon. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, about 24 or 23 had no debate at all. And they had a criteria, a criterion sort of list that they would check off as to whether or not something was able to be called, you know, canon, right? It's the officially inspired belongs in the New Testament. And so... uh, Think of Romans again. If Hebrews and Romans are the two twins at the top of the theological heap in terms of complexity and brilliance, Romans was clearly inspired, right? It had all of the marks of being this inspired teaching, inspired scripture. It was clearly true. It was what the apostles taught. The whole church used it. So one, was it inspired? Two, do all the churches around the Mediterranean use it as scripture? Uh, And then three, who wrote it? And this is a really, really big deal. Now that we're 2,000 years displaced from it, We can look at a a letter and say, well, you know, maybe Peter wrote 2 Peter. Maybe his disciples wrote it. We're not exactly sure, but we believe it's Scripture. And that's okay to say, whereas in the early church, it's like it was a big deal whether or not the actual disciple wrote it or not. Um, And so uh, uh, apostolic authorship was huge. And so when you look at Romans, there was just no doubt. Uh, The whole church used it. Paul wrote it. There's not a single scholar in the world that doubts that Romans was written by Paul. It was carried by Phoebe to Rome. It was read aloud to the Roman church while Paul was alive and then could come later to attest to it. It talked about all the same stuff that Paul always talked about justification, sanctification, Jewish Gentile relationships, uh, who was in the family of God, how they got there, works or faith. Check, check, check. No one's going to question Romans. Uh, think about Mark. You know, John Mark was not an apostle but he was Peter's either son or cousin and nephew. I forget the relationship, but he's a relation to Peter, and Peter was the main source, it was understood, for Mark. So even though Mark isn't an apostle, the whole church used it, everyone agreed it was inspired, and Peter was the source. You know, And it's, it's arguable, we don't know exactly how literate Peter was, and so here Mark was writing down a lot of Peter's story. Luke, same thing. You know, He's not an exact apostle, but he's Paul's traveling companion. It doesn't get much more... of a a higher pedigree than Luke right you're traveling with Paul you're telling his story in Acts and so even though Luke isn't an apostle he still passes all these tests and there's no debate and then you get to Hebrews (laughs) I don't know if any of you guys have it open uh, but do you guys know what the first word of every single one of Paul's letters is in in Greek it may not be this in in English you know the very first word of all of Paul's letters I may have said this before it's Paulos. The very first word is always Paul. That's how we see you sign it. It makes sense. We sign our letters at the end, right? You get a long letter. You're like, who wrote this, right? You, you go to the end to figure out who it's from. Uh, in their letters, they sign it by saying in the very first word or two who's writing it. And Hebrews is this strange New Testament letter. It's the only one that's not signed. It's the only letter that goes unsigned. And the early church theologians knew that it was paramount that this be included in the canon. Many of the terms we use when we talk about the Trinity depend almost entirely on the book of Hebrews and John. And so if you, if you can't pass Hebrews, if you can't get the church to agree that, yes, this belongs, even though we don't know who wrote it, uh, then you weaken a lot of your arguments that everyone knew was true about the Trinity. And so uh, the Arians, this is an early church heresy, they used to say that God existed first and then he created Jesus second. So they would say there was a time when Jesus was not. And this is heresy. This is not true. That like Jesus, the Bible is clear on this. Hebrews is clear on this. John is clear on this. That Jesus is eternally generated. The word of God, God is never without his word, right? And Jesus is the word of God. So as soon as you have God, right? Is it, it, in the beginning was God and his word was with him. It wasn't a second creation. It wasn't something that came after. God is eternally generating Jesus. And Hebrews makes this very clear. Jesus was in the beginning with God, everything was created through him, then he became man, then he was exalted, still God, still human throughout all of this. And so the early church was like, well, you know, is this book inspired? I mean, if there are any, uh, not that there's levels of inspiration, but man, when you read Hebrews... Again, just like when you read Romans, it can smack you in the face and you say, well, there's no question at all that this is inspired. It belongs in Scripture. Uh, But did the whole church use it? And this is where it gets tricky because Rome had a bit of a trouble with this book because that's where Paul spent the end of his life. And Rome remembered that this was not written by Paul. And so the Eastern Church was like, yeah, this was written by Paul. It's a great book. It's clearly inspired apostolic authority. Let's just call it as it is. But Rome was really stuck on this idea, like, well, we don't know who wrote it. And it wasn't Paul because he lived here, you know, for the last 10 years of his life where Rome were awesome. Paul and Peter lived here, died here. Uh, and he didn't write this book. Uh, but this popular view that Paul wrote it has carried on for a long time. Uh, did any of you grow up in the King James Version, by chance? Anyone grow up reading the these and thous and halfs and all that? Um, the King James, if you have one, if you ever find one, um, open it up, and you'll see, if you open to Hebrews, it says at the top, the letter of Paul to the Hebrews. Now, it doesn't say that in, in the actual Greek text, but that's how they, how they said it, just to give it that authority. Um, but again, all of Paul's books start the same way, and this one doesn't. So it would be an awfully strange thing for Paul to start 13 letters by saying, hey, this is Paul, uh, and then to, for, for some reason, not do that. Not only that, it doesn't sound anything like Paul. And if you read Greek enough, you get the ear for it. It's sort of like, it's hard to, people have a hard time understanding this, but think about music. If you were listening to a lot of Bob Dylan, and then you went to a Josh Groban song, it's just Christmas time, there's all these Josh Groban songs always playing. Um, If you listened to Josh Groban after Bob Dylan, you would have no doubt, like, even if, the, even if the, the song wasn't signed, even if you didn't have the album cover right in front of you, you would absolutely know, you No, know, those are two different singers, even if they're both very talented, but in their own ways, right? Bob Dylan has a very obnoxious voice, even as amazing as he is as a songwriter, but it's an obnoxious voice, right? Let's be honest, uh, but I love him, right? Uh, one of the most famous uh, musicians and Minnesotan uh, to boot. Um, all right, so they're very talented, but in different ways. So I'm not trying to say that Paul is Bob Dylan or anything like that. Uh, but Paul could turn a beautiful literary phrase. Think of 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the chapter on love that's so often read at weddings. I mean, he could do literary and beautiful writing. But he was a very direct and rough, frank writer. Uh, and if you spoke Greek as your first language, you would hear it. Uh, Origen says this about the letter of the Hebrews. He says... Uh, The verbal style of the epistle to the Hebrews is not rude like the language of the apostle Paul, who acknowledged himself as rude in speech, that is, in expression, but that its diction is pure Greek. Anyone who has the power to discern differences of phraseology will acknowledge. Moreover, that the thoughts of the epistle of of Hebrews are admirable and not inferior to the acknowledged apostolic writings— anyone who carefully examines the apostolic text will admit. So this is Origen kind of doing a balancing act. He's saying, well, it's clearly not Paul, but it's also clearly of apostolic quality and deserves to be in the canon, but it's clearly not Paul because it doesn't sound anything like him. Uh, All right, so Paul writes more, not rudely as in... um, the opposite of nice, but rude isn't sort of brute or direct, rough, kind of uh, not poetic, not Greek. He's taking more from the Old Testament in terms of its style than he is from the Greek poets. Uh, again, some of you will really love this. I'm looking at you, Dustin. No, some of you will love this stuff, and others of you, man, just hold on, because next week we'll be diving right into Hebrews 1. Um, Alright, so Hebrews is, this book we're about to start, is the most beautifully written book in the New Testament. It's written, it's the only book in the New Testament that's not written quite in the same language as the rest of the New Testament. It's written in classical Greek, so it's still technically the same language, but the rest of the New Testament is written in what's called Koine Greek, so common Greek. It's kind of street Greek, it's what you'd hear at the marketplace, just very uh, rough informal, cuts corners, it was made for, if, you know, if Alexander the Great conquers a hundred different territories, and they all speak different languages, they all have to speak something. And what they ended up speaking was Koine Greek. So a lot of them spoke it as a second language, it was just something to get you by, right? It wasn't as deep, poetic, as uh, nuanced. But Hebrews is written in classical Greek, the same language that Homer, uh, Plato, Socrates spoke and wrote in, And so some people say, well, you know, isn't it possible that Paul wrote this, but because he was writing to a different audience that he wrote in a different style? And there are a few smoking guns as to the fact that Paul could not have written this, and it absolutely just couldn't have been him. Uh, One of the smoking guns is that this author, the letter to the Hebrews, knows a lot about Jews and is a Jew themselves, but this author does not know Hebrew. This author knows Scripture inside and out in the Greek translation. This author could quote you scripture all day long in the Greek translation, but there's not a single citation of scripture in this entire book that borrows from the Hebrew, the original Hebrew Old Testament. Everything comes from the Greek translation, if that makes sense. Paul mixed and matched. Paul was fluent in Hebrew, fluent in Greek, he would just kind of take from whichever one suited him, whichever one he'd read most recently, whichever one he wanted to pull from. He would just pull from. But this author does not know Hebrew. Uh, this author is clearly a Greek Jew. So someone who was Greek, uh, someone who grew up in a, a Hellenic culture who then became maybe a Jewish believer or was from a mixed family, a Jew and a, a Greek that were married. Uh, but the ultimate smoking gun is the, fa- the fact that this was not written by Paul, is that in chapter 2, verse 3, the author says, it was declared, it was talking about, sal- t- talking about salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Let me say this again. It was declared, salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by who? By those who heard. So this author does not identify themselves as an apostle. Paul will say over and over, he'll take it to the grave, he said, I am the final apostle, right? Jesus himself came down and gave me the gospel, right? He knocked me off my horse on the way to Damascus. He blinded me and Jesus himself gave me this this message, right? And even even if I'm the last of the apostles, I have outworked them all. Paul would say that over and over and you can see that throughout the New Testament. But here it says, salvation was declared by the Lord and it was attested to us by, by, by the apostles, by the people who heard. So whoever wrote Hebrews was not in that original batch of apostles. It was somebody who learned the gospel from the apostles. Okay, this is important to, to get through some of this as to who's writing it and what the stakes are. Uh, so we know this author, author is not an apostle. They heard of salvation secondhand. So Paul is out, and that made it very hard For the early church to, or for the early Roman church at least, to get behind an unsigned letter. They're just like, well, clearly it's inspired, but it's not signed. And so they had trouble approving it for the canon. Uh, It's mostly used by all the churches except for Rome. And so you can imagine the Romans, here it is, it's only a few generations after Paul has died. And you're like, well, my parents or grandparents or great grandparents worked together with Paul. And I mean, you can, be, you can bet that in 30 or 40 years, if somebody looked at the manuscript of some of the sermons that I gave here, if you guys are still alive, or if your kids you know, are still alive, you, you better bet that you would be able to say which sermons were likely mine and which weren't, right? If you spent years hearing from this person, I mean, years hearing from them. And so here these Romans are just a few generations later, and they're like, that's not Paul. He was here. We remember him. Or my grandparents worked together with him. Uh, so that's why they had this trouble. Uh, <laughs> but have you ever read this passage where Jesus says to be uh, as shrewd as serpents but as innocent as doves? You guys know this passage, be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves? Hopefully I'm not making you guys uncomfortable uh, by saying this. Uh, the Latin fathers knew that this was scripture and knew it was true and knew it was amazing. And so just to kind of help the church along, they knew, they knew what was right. They knew this belonged in the canon. And to help the church along, they said, well, you know, maybe it was Paul. Maybe uh, it was Paul's argument that he spoke over and over, but then, you know, three or four years after he died, one of his students, who was well-trained in the Greek poets and philosophy, wrote his argument down, but in their own verbiage. And that's why it doesn't sound like Paul, but it's Paul's argument. Uh, And the Roman church was sort of this go-between, like, oh yeah, maybe... You know, it's clearly a genius, and Paul's a genius, and there's not many geniuses around, but a genius clearly wrote it. So maybe it's just Paul, and either Luke like, translated something Paul wrote in Hebrew, or maybe someone wrote it down later. And so they kind of adopted this false pretense of Paul as the author so that it would be more readily, more easily digested into the canon. Uh, and today, uh, Paul, or not, of course, we're, we're, we don't worry at all about its inspiration. It's clearly beautiful, true scripture, but it helped the early church that it was. It was Paul. Now, uh, this is this is really interesting. The the first chapter might not have grabbed you so much, but just wait as as we go through it. Um, The book is so impressive that scholars. There's been it's one of the deepest mysteries in my life, and one of the things that I think is most fascinating is the hunt for the author of the Hebrews. So again, I know some of you are digging this, and some of you are like, "Is this what is this?" Uh, (laughs) But one of the most fascinating questions I've ever thought on is who wrote Hebrews. And a lot of scholars make a good point that say there is not an intellect that could write this who could go unnamed in the rest of the New Testament. If you could do this before 70 A.D. when the temple, uh, they know that this was written before 70 A.D. because all of its arguments would be just irresistible to the fact that when the Romans destroyed the temple, it sort of, it, it makes the argument of this book even stronger, but the book never mentions the destruction of the temple. And there's just no way that it was written after 70 AD because the destruction of the temple would be like the, the knockout punch for a lot of these arguments the author is making. And so scholars say this book is so impressive, there's simply no way that that author could not be named by the other people in the New Testament because if you can do this, there's just no way that the other apostles don't know about you and aren't working together with you. And so if... And we can't be sure. They could be wrong. It could just be a no-name pastor. But if the person who wrote this is named in the rest of the New Testament, the huge mystery is, well, one, who are they? And two, why on earth didn't they put their name on it, and why don't we remember the name? Why didn't the church hold on to the name of this person? What's going on that this is the one book that we don't know who wrote it? Like, why, why this book, right? And why then? So... If we, know that who, if we know who it is, if we're aware of what the name is, who is it? And there's a few candidates that rise to the top of the pool as to who could have written this. So we know this. We know the author had a close try, tie to the city of Alexandria. Uh, the Greek, the literature, the philosophical references, we'll kind of brush over it. But just like um, if you read an author in English and they cite the New York Times and the Atlantic a lot, uh, you could presume they're more likely to be American, right? And if they cite the Guardian all like left and right, you, you could imagine they're probably British, right? And, and those are just, just a small clue as to, in our culture, you kind of get a sense for where someone's coming from based on what literature they interact with. Uh, and in the same way, this author is clearly very influenced by Alexandria or is educated there and is of that school. This author is Jewish but doesn't know Hebrew, This author is extremely educated in the Greek Old Testament uh, and trained or, or, or sort of brought up from the Alexandrian school. Though not Paul and didn't talk like him, this author was one of Paul's companions because it names some of the same people. This book, whoever wrote it, is friends with Timothy. It names Timothy at the end. He would be one of the top contenders, but since it names him as clearly somebody else, it's not Timothy. It names people from Italy. It says greetings from those uh, from Italy. And it clearly has something to do with the church in Rome. Okay, so now we're getting close. This is somebody who knows Paul, who knows Timothy, but is not Paul or Timothy. And they know the church in Rome uh, face to face. So there's only about five or six names that could fit this if we know the name. And we'll discuss the two or three most likely. So one contender, not the most likely, but one contender is Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas traveled with Paul. He was with him a lot. He was this son of encouragement. Uh, But Barnabas was so quickly eclipsed by Paul. (laughs) uh, In the Bible, they have this tendency to write the most important person first in a list. If there's two people, like in a couple, the most important one always gets named first. Uh, There's only one time in the entire Bible that Barnabas gets named before Paul, and that's on the day they met. And then after that, it's always Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Because very quickly, Paul eclipsed Barnabas in influence um, and sort of power, you could say. So it's unlikely that somebody who could write something like this would be so quickly eclipsed by Paul when Hebrews is, is up there with Romans. All right, so that's just not that likely. Uh, Luke, it actually sounds a lot like Luke. It's the most similar uh, wording, the most similar verbiage to Luke, but Luke is a physician and a historian. He's not very philosophical. He's not a speaker or like an orator. Uh, he's uh, he is a Gentile though, and he's not Hebrew speaking. So, and he's a companion of Paul. So that's a good that's a good lean there. Um, but the deciding factor for me on it not being Luke is this: is that when Luke and Paul traveled together, Paul always preached. Luke didn't preach. When Paul and Luke traveled together, Paul was the one who preached. But with somebody who could write this and come up with ideas like this, you get the sense that Paul would share the pulpit or even just step back and say, you know what? Wow, why don't you do your thing and I'll take notes. Uh, (laughs) So this leaves two potential authors. If this author is known in the New Testament, it comes down to essentially two leading candidates. I guess three if you count Luke. But the two are either Apollos or Priscilla. Now, Apollos is the leading contender, I'll say. He is a Greek Jew. And he's from Alexandria. Listen to what the Bible says about him. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, eloquent, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when... Priscilla, Ding, ding, ding. Our two leading contenders are talked about in the same paragraph here. Okay, so when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For this Apollos had, or for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing why, or showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, so this is really interesting. When you look at the character of Hebrews and the kind of person writing it, and then you look at Apollos, he's, he's great in scripture, he's elegant, he's bold, and he, it seems like his mission is to discuss, argue, debate with Jews who reject Jesus as the Christ. His mission was to write to Jews or Hebrews. Paul is called the apostle to the what- to the Gentiles. Paul, he identifies as the, the apostle to the Gentiles. He doesn't identify, though he is a Jew and a Hebrew, he doesn't identify as the, the apostle to the Hebrews. Whereas Apollos, his whole jam was writing and speaking to Jews and the Hebrews. And so when you read Hebrews, you get the sense that, man, maybe this writer is so good that Paul, I don't know, maybe would have felt a bit of a complex or a little bit of a little bit small next to him. And we only have evidence, this is fascinating, we have evidence that Paul felt small intellectually when compared with only one other person in the New Testament. In terms of church authority and pedigree, going back to the original apostles, Paul sometimes feels inferior to Peter and James, but not in terms of his intellect. He will stand in front of Peter, like in Galatians 2, and just say, you're wrong, in front of the entire Jerusalem church. So intellectually, Paul's like, not worried about Peter in terms of his apostleship, maybe. But there is one who intellectually Paul feels inferior to, and it's Apollos. Paul planted the church in Corinth. Uh, it's a very educated and wealthy place. And then he moves on after a couple of years. And then Corinth ends up getting Apollos. I don't know if he lives there or what, but he ends up becoming their main preacher, their main teacher. And some of them are starting to divide into factions. They're like, well, you know, I'm actually more of this, I'm more like Apollos, right? I, I like this this guy who's a Greek scholar and who's a poet and all the rest. Uh, and so Paul ends up dealing with this problem. You may have read this. Uh, he says... I appeal to you, brothers, these are the ones in Corinth, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, who's Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he goes on to say, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will, will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. God's building. So Paul is saying, hey, some of you who are so impressed with Apollos, we both serve the same purpose. This is clearly a really good political answer. When someone, like maybe you started something or you're leading someone, something, and somebody else comes along who's just truly astounding, and some people in that community are like, hey, we prefer this new person. They're better than you, right? And then you try to give this nice like, stand-back political answer, like, hey, you know, we're actually colleagues. Apollos and I are colleagues. I started it. I laid the foundation. He's building something else. That's great, that's wonderful, but the foundation is Christ, right? I planted, he watered, but it's Christ who gave the growth. Um, and so I'll, I'll move on from this, but that, that's the number one contender, is that somebody who could do this would be somebody who the early apostles would know. He fits the description, a Jew from Alexandria who doesn't speak Hebrew, uh, who Paul had a bit of an inferiority complex too. He called Apollos a, a super-apostle. Um, and then the other contender, who's maybe more interesting, especially in today's day and age, is the very person who trained Apollos in the gospel. So Apollos is called an apostle, and Priscilla is the one who trained him, right? And so we wrestle with this tension in the Bible, right? The, the Bible says something about some things about women in leadership, and it also says other things, like Apollos is an apostle, and here Priscilla trained him in the gospel, right? So it's like, okay, so is she an apostle to apostles then? Is that what her, you know, is that her qualification? So we recognize this tension and we wrestle with it. Um, The New Testament makes very clear that Priscilla is the MVP. There's this couple, right? Priscilla and Aquila. And you only get Aquila first like once. And all the other times, it's Priscilla first. So she is the MVP in terms of uh, leadership in this marriage. Uh, Her husband is a faithful servant, but she's kind of the one that Paul keeps looking to. Uh, Let's see here. She was an educated and talented Greek-speaking Jew. And as a woman, she would not have had the training in Hebrew that the Jewish boys got in their local synagogue. She would have been raised you know, as a girl, and so she would have just spoken the language of her diaspora, but not spoken Hebrew, which again, here this writer knows the scriptures super well, but only in Greek. Uh, she was brilliant, she was sound, and she had this authoritative manner to her, because here she is training Apollos, who went on to be the super apostle that Paul felt small around, Uh, But she doesn't, I'll be honest, she doesn't have as much evidence for her, but some of the strongest evidence is from silence. So if this super apostle Apollos, who Paul feels small around, had written this book, where's the name? Why wouldn't his name be on the book, right? Or even if it wasn't there, some people say, well, maybe because he had a Greek background, maybe the Jews in Rome wouldn't wouldn't have taken his advice, right, if they knew who it was. So maybe they left the name off. But, you know, people would still know who it came from. And why wouldn't the memory of the church preserve that for one or two generations? Already by the year 100, nobody had any idea who wrote this letter. And it almost seems, and a lot of scholars jump on this, it almost seems like it was willfully anonymous. Like the church itself chose to forget who wrote it. Um, And so the argument for Priscilla is that just knowing the, the, the patriarchal society in Rome at the time that Priscilla was this just giant of New Testament thinking, but... They knew that the rest of the church would not accept it if her name was on it. And so here she writes it, maybe with her husband. They leave their names off. Everyone in the church kind of knows who wrote it, kind of pretends not to, because the scripture itself is so great, and they follow it. And then all of a sudden, just two generations later, imagine like some of the kids here grow up and just have no idea anymore who spoke the sermons just 20, 30, 40 years earlier. In 40 years, everyone in Rome has forgotten who this letter came from, even though That the author knew everyone. It was naming all these Roman Christians by name. Uh, So it's a really interesting background here, and some say this is willful anonymity, and that Priscilla wrote this. Rome recognized how great she was, and they all just kind of kept it under wraps uh, so that she could write this book, uh, which is a, a really interesting argument, and we'll never know. We'll probably never know who wrote this book. We'll never unearth uh, the truth, but it's probably Apollos uh, or or Priscilla or possibly even Luke, dealing with some ideas uh, from Paul. Uh, and so, like I said, I have seven or eight more pages here, and I won't go into all of it. I'll just give you a bit of a background into the book, and then we'll actually tackle chapter one um, next week. But this book was written to people that I think it relates. It relates to us now because a lot of Christians, you guys have heard me say this that. In 2005, we reached the number one, it was the number one year for adult conversions to Christianity in this country. So in terms of a a revival, something started with the hippie Christian movement in the 1970s, and it culminated, this evangelical boom culminated in 2005. And so a lot of of us here uh, came of age in our Christian faith somewhere within maybe five or ten years, not all of us, and some of you weren't even born yet, right? Um, but a lot of us came of age somewhere around that time. Uh, <laughs> Jeff and Susan are like, way before then, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that sort of, uh, that hippie Christian Jesus movement culminated in 2005. And then we've been on a bit of a downswing um, since then. And then, uh, so if the, the most adults converted to Christianity in 2005 of any year in American history, uh, the least... Have converted to Christianity, starting in the year 2016, and every year after that getting worse. Okay, so we—if you've been alive since 2005—you have seen both the highest and the lowest number of adult conversions to Christianity in the history of this country, all within your lifetime. So you would say, in terms of, um, in terms of uh, what's it called, um, a revival, we've seen that crest and then just absolutely plummet. Which, of course, is too bad. But Hebrews is written to people who are in that downswing, like we seem to be right now in our culture. So when Jesus first died and rose again, there was all this excitement, right, that the Jewish Messiah is here, he's died and risen again, let's go share the news to all the Jews. And about one-fifth or one-fourth, it's estimated, of the Jews in the Middle East converted to Christianity very quickly, but then it stopped. And then almost no Jews after the first century converted to Christianity ever after, right? They were sort of solidified in their Jewish identity. A lot of people think that almost none converted. It was actually a huge number. Millions of Jews became Christians almost over, over the, the next you know, few years. There um, or hundreds of thousands of Jews. But then it stopped. So imagine you're a young Jewish Christian or a middle-aged, young, uh, middle-aged Jewish Christian. You converted shortly after the resurrection, and now it's been 20 years. And a lot of your relatives never converted And now you're sort of ostracized because you recognize this Messiah that they think is a heresy, right? Now you're not welcome at their family gatherings. There might just be a few of you, or you might be the only Christian, and the rest of your family is not. Okay, so here now, you know, a year goes on, and another year, and you're saying, well, you know, the Messiah is going to come back. A lot of them thought he was going to come back during their lifetime. There's no real reason for that, but that's what they thought. And Jesus wasn't coming back, and all of a sudden now you're in your 40s, and you're in your 50s, maybe you're in your 60s, and you're just keeping on, and you've burned a lot of your family, right, because you've accepted this Messiah that they have not. And then not only that, but Rome starts coming down really hard on you. Rome expelled all of the Christians in the year 49 AD, and then they even started killing some of them into the 50s, and so there's a debate as to when this is written, but it was clearly, it was certainly after 49, uh, and it might even be when some are being killed. So these Jews are just really, these Jewish Christians are just really depressed that they've been living and following Christ for 20 years, and a lot of that new energy is gone, right? They're not not in that college crew or navigators group anymore. You know, they're not like just coming around and reading scripture for the first time. They've been in this life for a while, and they're they're seeing the cards kind of crumble around them rather than this... Uh, tidal wave of everyone converting and just the whole world flipping over overnight. They're in the, they're in it for the long haul now. And that, do you guys ever feel like that? Like in, sometimes in faith, you remember like maybe being in college or like all these things happening, and all of a sudden you find your, yourself in a spot where a lot of your friends are walking away from the faith. How many of you have had a good friend walk away from Christianity in your life? Okay, how many of you in the last five years have had a good friend convert to be, to being a Christian in the last five years? Right. See you see. Look around. Right. Almost everyone in the room raised their hand. They know a good friend who's left Christianity during their lives. Almost no, none of you know anyone who's converted to Christianity, a good friend. Is that, is that right? No one, almost no one has a friend who's converted in the last five years. That's the season the church finds ourselves in right now. It's natural. We go through these swings. But that's who Hebrews is written to. It's written to you guys. It's written to people who raise their hands like that. Man, I remember when all these people were coming to Christ like crazy 15, 20 years ago. This is, 20 years before this was the resurrection, okay? I remember when things were crazy, right? When there was this revival and all these people were coming to Christ left and right. And now Hebrews is written to these people who are watching people walk away and the writer saying, don't walk away. You know, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. Stay firm in your faith. Bind up your weak knees and stay. But these people are like, well, hey, not only is my family rejecting me, but now Rome is coming down hard on me, and I might even bleed over this. Like, I might die. And the writer's saying, stay firm and stay strong. And so I think uh, this is a season for the church where Hebrews, maybe more than any other book, is relevant to our time. Five or 10 years ago, people used to say 1 Corinthians is the most relevant book to our time because of all this rampant hedonism and sin and all the rest, but now we're facing this thing where people in the church are losing their heart and their spirit and people are just sort of running out of energy. Gas tank is on empty, we're sputtering, and people are just like, oh, just laying down their hands and giving up following Christ. Uh, And that's happening, that's happening quite a bit. And Hebrews is written to that group. So it's both, it's a really exciting, encouraging book, but it's also written to a group of people who are kind of going through what the American church and what the Western church is, is going through right now. Um, so that's why we're starting this series. Uh, and I wanted to start on this note, this long historical note. It's kind of like, if you liked reading uh, Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code, you know, 15 years ago? You know, the history and it's garbage. But like the mystery of trying to figure out like what's the truth and what happened. If you like that kind of stuff, hopefully you find this question of like, who wrote this? Uh, interesting, Because as we go through it, I want you to be asking yourself, does this sound like a woman? Does this sound like Priscilla? Does this sound like Apollos? Does it sound like Luke? Does it sound like Paul? I want you to be thinking about that critical aspect as we go through and try to learn from the book itself. So I wanted to give you some of that background, some of the debate on this book, why the early church struggled with it, even though it was so clearly Scripture. But then ultimately, the reason we're going through it is because it's so encouraging and written to people who are in our stage of life Um, so you know i'm gonna end there like i said i've got another 10 pages almost of material but we'll save that for next week uh, for the you know as a grace to all of you Uh, so thank if you're not so much into like the history of you know the mystery of it all who wrote it uh we'll get into more of our normal swing of things again next week uh so thank you guys for being with us let me just pray to close and then i welcome you guys to join us downstairs for donuts and coffee all right. Uh, Father, we thank you for this letter to the Hebrews. We thank you for whoever wrote it in this big mystery, whether it was Apollos or Luke or Paul or Priscilla or somebody we don't know uh, who their name, what their name is anymore. Uh, we pray that you would let it minister to our hearts, that we would go home and we'd read through it, or at least read through the first half this week and the second half next week. Uh, we pray that as we just keep cycling through this uh, in our own devotions and in our, in our, our sermon series here, that you would help it, just as it originally encouraged Christians that were kind of dealing with um, an empty gas tank, that you would help us too as the church is going through this downswell where we're all watching people walk away and not convert. And it's been a hard hard few years. Uh, So we pray for encouragement uh, and inspiration. And we thank you for this book and that you oversaw your scripture, that you were faithful to make sure that this was a part of the New Testament for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West Seventh Community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at CapitalCitySt.Paul.com.